Turn to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah 8. So my 40th birthday party, um, first off, I hate that it was so long ago. Six months is a long time, you know. Um, but the day came three days after we had moved to Ashland. So you want to picture me, my wife, our daughter in a house we'd never seen before, boxes everywhere, uh, depression in the air, super depressed. We sat at the table. It's my birthday. We'd kind of forgotten. I was conveniently forgetting given the birthday that it was. And we all just one by one started crying. It was it was insane. Um, Melissa was like, I'm sorry I didn't make you a cake. And I was like, I don't want a cake. I want to go home. <laughs> and Beth was like, why are we even talking about cake right now? You have both ruined my life, you know. <laughs> oh, man. I remember it like it was yesterday. It kind of was. We, at that moment, didn't really need cake I'm surprised I just said that. I'm surprised those words came out of my mouth. But what we really needed in that moment was we needed our hearts to be lifted up and out. We needed to be revived and renewed in some ways. We needed to pray. We needed to be reminded of why we were here, about how God brought us to this place, to this town for a particular reason that even then we, we weren't quite sure what that was because everything would end up changing for us. Uh, for sure. We needed to unpack our boxes too, right? So we need to take some practical steps. We needed to step out the door and get moving with our lives. We needed to remember once again the journey that God had taken us on and that he was with us all the way, right? We needed cake. You know, that's what we needed in that, in that moment. So I, I want to I ask this question as we're kicking this off right now, which is what, what do you think of when you think of being revived? Or, or, the, or the more churchy word for that through the ages would be revival. What do you think about? Where does your mind go when you think of revival? That's a tricky word, right? We probably all have different definitions that we'd bring to the table if we were to sit down and chat it out. Tim Keller, this is how he defines revival. I think it's pretty good, so that's why I'm going to read it. He says, periods of great spiritual awakening and growth where sleepy or lukewarm Christians wake up, nominal Christians get converted, and many skeptical non-believers are drawn to faith. So that, that tells us something about this movement that God begins through this thing called revival when there's sort of a, a fresh reawakening of people's hearts to God and to God's word and to getting back to a place where we understand why we were put on the face of the earth and that we're excited about what God's doing because we're finally believing that he's alive and that he's moving and what revival typically leads to are, are just movements where these things continue and what we see are churches that are planted and established and people are coming to faith and many revivals are happening all around. Churches are being constantly revived and there is a sense that God is at work, the spirit is moving and we are eager to be a part of that movement, right? Now, if you're me, I, if you asked me, 
hey, what's a revival? What does a church revival look like? Well, I think back to some of the movements that have happened throughout history. Um, I think of some of those church signs, right? Where you're driving down the road and it'll say church revival this Wednesday, right? Except there's something kind of strange about that because we, we can't just like declare church revival. Like you can't just put it on a sign in presto revival. It's not just magic, right? Revival can't be manufactured. It doesn't happen just because you put the church sign up and you say revival service this Sunday. What we're going to look at this morning are some signs of revival and reformation that happened here um, with uh, the people of Israel who had just finished rebuilding the walls and the gate. We've been going through this now for weeks. And we want to ask that question. What are the signs that revival and reformation are happening in our church, because we see how it happened here, and it really happens the same way in our church uh, today. So let's read what happens. I'm going to pick right up in Nehemiah 8. We're going to read the whole chapter, and this is what it says, Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra, here's Ezra coming back into the, the story, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, oh boy, Matithia, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right hand, and Padeah, Mishael, uh, Milkajah, Heshum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and, Mish- and Mishulam on his left hand. That was something what I just did right there, man. Yeah. <laughs> Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shephathah, Hodiath, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jozbed, Hanan, and Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Then verse 9, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they understood the words that were declared to them. In verse 13, it says, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in their towns in Jerusalem. 
Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. Verse 17, and all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. So what we see now is we see the, the people of God coming back to the word of God and returning to those things that had been just dropped and left, these, these rituals and these customs that were important because God had commanded them to keep these things, and they had just, through the years and through their captivity, they they didn't keep these things anymore. So this is a, this is a return of God's people um, back to God's word to obey the word of the Lord and to understand God's words. And we're seeing something happen in the hearts of the people here, right? There's like a, there's a dramatic change. There's a shift. There's a renewal that's taking place, right? It's not just about building the wall. It wasn't like all the work was done because they got that wall up. It's looking sweet. The gates are all fixed. They're feeling confident as a nation now. They, you know, they have people that are, that are set up and, and put into posts and they're guarding. So they're, you know, they have protection now against uh, enemies. It's not just about that. It really what it's about is what all of that was leading up to, which is this, which is a people coming back into communion and into worship with God. And that's what's happening right now, right? That's what's happening today. You guys broke through the garage door of your house and you came back and you went through those doors, through the warehouse, and you came back to once again reassemble and get your hearts and minds realigned with this book, realigned with God's word. And so there is a revival here that is happening. There's a, a reformation that is happening here with God's people. So we just want to look at three things here that are signs for us that we see from what we just read. They're signs for us of what happens when revival and reformation begins. Where does that begin? What are the things that we need to look for? The first thing we see is a renewed desire for God's word. The people ask Ezra to open the word. Open the word for us. They're like, we need someone to preach, right? That's what they're saying. They also check this out, all right? That don't, don't feel condemned by this, but they had a, they built a pulpit for this brother, right? They gathered in the square and Ezra stepped up and he brings the words. The people had built a pulpit. We had to have this pulpit built, just saying, I mean, we just had to have this thing built so that I had something to walk up here and set the Bible down on. These people build a pulpit. They prepare for this particular moment when the expectation was that Ezra's going to step up and he's going to bring it. He's going to bring the word, right? That's one of the steps that we see when God is renewing and reviving people's hearts is that our hearts start hungering for God's word. And we are eager for it. We realize that these are the words that transform us. They transform our mind. They change our heart. And we're eager to get that stuff in us. We're eager to reconnect to God through his word. A renewed desire for God's word is always going to be what precedes 
revival and reformation. When we look back at the Protestant Reformation, this big moment in the 1500s, um, what kicked it off, if you guys, some of you guys know your history, what kicked it off was a German monk named Martin Luther. And what happened to him was he, he opened God's word, he read God's word, he returned to what it actually said, and this singular moment that this brother, this German monk had with God's word was what sparked revival and reform throughout all of Europe. Because this brother opened up the word and he said, hey, I think, I think the church has been teaching us wrongly with what this word is actually saying, and that needs to stop. So it was God's word and this hunger for what God's word actually said is what sparked something in him, which then sparked an entire movement. So the way this brother's heart was revived led to a revival and a reformation uh, throughout all the lands. This is why the church, listen to this, that's why the church needs to be guarded against taking the preaching of the word lightly, right? Or dismissing it off is not important or feeling uh, that it's kind of it's dated, it's kind of antiquated, it's not really relevant for the times. Really, like seriously, we're still opening this book, it's 2022, it can't be relevant for the times that we live in. And of course, as the centuries continue to progress and times change and movements begin and movements end, it's God's word that is like an anvil for the church. It's unchanging, it's there, it doesn't become dated. It never becomes relevant. It always has everything that the life and times that we are living in needs for godliness. It tells us it does, and it has proven that it does, right? That's why we need to be guarded against taking the preaching of the word lightly, because it's the only thing that can revive hearts. God's word is the only thing that can reform lives. It's the only thing that can do it. Everything else is just going to be a shallow substitute. Anything else we do is going to be something that at times is going to make us feel like we're growing and we're thriving and we're moving along. But at the end of the day, if it's not undergirded, if the foundation of it isn't God's word, then what are we doing? We don't really have a support system, right? We don't have the words of life that are informing us how to live our lives based on the life that has entered our hearts through Jesus Christ, right? So God's word to us is how we connect back to God. And so this desire that the people had for God's word was so important given what they had just come out of and given the building project that had just happened for them. But the word has to be preached. The word has to be preached for it uh, to be heard. Let's turn to Romans chapter 10. Go to the New Testament. Romans 10. It's a word from Paul. Getting into, uh, getting into some text here about preaching. As you're turning there, you want to go to verse 13. This is what Romans 10, 13 reminds us of. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's the gospel message in part, right? Then verse 14, it says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Paul's getting super practical right here. And he says, and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach uh, the good news. Apparently, I have beautiful feet, you know. That was the dumbest thing I've probably ever said behind the pulpit. The Apostle Paul is trying to make a point here to say that if salvation comes through the hearing of God's word, then the word must be preached for people to hear and respond to it and not just one time, right? God's word is for life and for godliness, right? It's something that saves us when we were far from God and then it keeps us close to God as we're living and we continue to grow in him. So God's word, there's never a time when God's word doesn't have utmost relevance and importance in our life. And this is why he told Timothy, uh, the, the, the dude that he was mentoring in 2 Timothy 4, let's just turn there. This is why he said, look, Timothy, you got to preach the word, brother. So when we get to 2 Timothy, I'm just talking now, I'm stalling because I can't find it either. Um, 2 Timothy 4 1 through 5, he says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Again, Paul talking to Timothy, a pastor, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. This is what he says. Look, in verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So preaching is primary in the church like it was primary back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it has to be primary here at Substance. Not so that the preacher has a job. But because preaching is the job. Does that make sense? And as you hear the word, as you sing the word, as you pray the word, God will give you a greater hunger for the word. Not so you become wordy, right? Not so that you just get fat heads full of all kinds of theology and information, but so that like Peter in John chapter 6, you will say, Lord, to whom will we go? What do we got? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. A renewed desire for God's word brings people closer to the person that God sent to save our souls, who is Jesus Christ. So what are the signs that revival and reformation are happening in the church? The first thing is that there is a renewed desire and a hunger for God's word. Secondly, we see that there is a renewed understanding of God's word. If you pick back up in uh, Nehemiah, verse 7, it says also, I, man, I'm not going to read those words, but they help the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places, it says in verse 7. And then in verse 8, it says, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The people, listen to this, needed a renewed understanding of the word. They needed a hunger for it, but they also needed to understand it. So 13 men, as well as uh, some Levite priests, helped them. It doesn't really say how they did it. It doesn't say if they were just interpreting the words because maybe it was being preached to them in a different language. It was maybe a combination of that, but also these men coming alongside of them and saying, here's what Ezra is saying. Here's what he means when he says this. 
So that people were being helped. They were given an opportunity to not just hear the word, but to understand the laws of God. So that begs the question, then, well, what, what is preaching then? What is preaching exactly? Is it just reading a passage, praying, and then, you know, donuts? Is that really what's happening? Well, it requires a little bit more than that. It requires explanation. It requires illustrations, sometimes, depending on what I got for you, right? It requires application so that we gain an increased understanding of what God was speaking to the people who originally received this word and then what it is speaking to the church who is still receiving his word. So if we value God's word, if we have a hunger and a thirst and a desire for God's word, we also value it being understood and, and obviously, what's so crazy about all of this, when we're talking about it, is that the method of preaching is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, don't think I'm, it's not lost on me that what I'm doing right now and what I'm going to do next Sunday is absurd. Why am I calling it absurd? Because Paul said it was absurd. He said it was absurd. He basically said that preaching was absolutely foolish. It's a foolish method. But it's the only way for people to gain a renewed understanding of what God is speaking to them. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul goes on to say that the, the word of the cross, this gospel that we preach, it's folly until God opens people's eyes to see and to believe and to understand that it's the only way to life. Which is why he also said this in 1 Corinthians 2 when he said, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what Paul is trying to say is, hey, I'm not, I'm not just trying to be a public speaker here. I'm just not just trying to get on the platform and like tell you guys stuff about stuff that I've learned, right? I'm not here to give you like a seminar. I'm not here to lead you down the road of like, you know, seven steps and how to improve your life. Churches do that. What he's saying though is what good is all of that if it's absent of the thing that is actually life transformational, which is the message of the cross and Christ crucified. That's it right there. It doesn't make sense that some dude standing in front of God's people speaking the words of God would be any occasion for lives to change, especially in this day and age, right? Because we can get information like everywhere. Like there was a time when people got their information like this and this was the primary way they got their information. Now we are inundated with information. You guys are getting information all the time, everywhere. I mean, you're a click away from all the information, good and bad, that, that you want, right? So some people might say, so this preaching thing, oh my gosh. Like what is this, the 1950s? Is this the 1850s? I mean, like what are we doing here with this thing? And yet the Bible tells us, no, 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 it's the method. It's the method that God put into place. And what's great about it is that the pastor has no ability to change lives. And by the way, remembering that is the only reason why I can keep doing this job, right? I have no ability to change you or fix you. Paul was pretty clear that it's the word that does the work. Ezra had no special power. He spoke what God had spoken in his law to the people. And it was that word that we see changing the people, right? Just like I have no ability to make a seed grow into a plant. I can only plant a seed. 
I can only water it. I can only pull the weeds around it. I can only water it some more, right? And then I can only wait. My only ability, just like your ability, and it's a meager one, is to point to the one who has all the ability. My job is to speak what the Lord has spoken, to make it plain so that you understand. Pray for me. And pray that God uses to save and sanctify you. Piece of cake, right? So as our understanding for God's word is renewed, something happens in that we experience something happening in the church that leads to life transformation. By the way, it's not any of the other stuff that happens in the church that leads to life transformation. For the Israelites, it wasn't the work. It wasn't those walls. It wasn't all the hammering, right? It wasn't, it wasn't those things, right? It wasn't those things that created life transformation. It was the Lord who renewed the people's desire to understand his word as they devoted their time, as they devoted their talent, as they devoted their resources to the work. That's what did it. So our desire is that all this work we're embarking on right now, you saw some of it as you walked in the doors this morning. Our desire is that all this work we're embarking on right now should flow from a renewed desire and a renewed understanding for God and for his word and for the work that understanding and his word do to us as a motivation for everything that we do, for everything that we do, right? Because I'm not interested. I'm not interested in just doing stuff to do stuff. I'm not interested in just getting people busy in the church for the sake of getting people busy, right? What is the reason why we do what we do? What is the reason why we do what we do? As we see here in Nehemiah, they were getting back to what was primary, which was a desire and an understanding of God's word. Because if not, Matt, we are just building things because we want to build things. You know what I'm saying? Or because we're bored. Or because we foolishly think that this is what it means to be the church. When we love God, when we desire his word and we understand what he's saying, we respond in ways that reflect his reviving in our hearts. My family would, back in the day, we would buy a bunch of old motorcycles, a bunch of old dirt bikes, and restore them. My dad loved bikes. He'd buy these just unsalvageable bikes for, you know, $10. Um, and he would revive these things. He loved bikes. He loved them. He also knew two-stroke engines really well. Like he, I mean, he could just, it would blindfolded, like he could, you know, he could, uh, he could restore two-stroke engines. He, he loved it. His aim was to revive them. Why? So that we could enjoy riding them, right? He, he didn't do it. He didn't build like collector's cases, put them behind the glass so we could stand back and admire his handiwork. No, we got on those things. Went out to the desert. We rode. We got dirty. We fell. We got hurt. It was great. <laughs> But there was an eagerness, there was an eagerness to get into something for the reason of getting us, his family, together. And so we desire God's word. We desire to understand God's word. Those are two of the signs of revival. And then finally, 
the third thing is, as we see here, is a renewed heart for rejoicing in God. That's what's happening right here as the Israelites are just being coming to a place where there's, there's all this sobriety as you read there in verse 9. When Ezra reads the words, the people are immediately wrecked. They're just wrecked. Why? Because they understand all the ways that they have failed to obey God. Notice they didn't, well, we often do, right? Notice they didn't put their chins up and say, well, we didn't do so bad, did we? Sure, we've missed a few things, but overall, I'd say we're doing okay, even though we've been in exile for all these years, right? That's not what we see the response from them happening as they had this new desire and this new understanding of God's word. There was immediate sobriety. There was this immediate move toward mourning. So an understanding, that what this tells us is that an understanding, a clear understanding of God's word, it puts us in our proper place. But this is what we're told here is that this wasn't the time for mourning. This wasn't the time for mourning. These brothers and sisters had been through a lot. They had just finished a massive building project. This was not the time for mourning. This was a time for rejoicing. And I'm sure that they had to hold those two things in tension. You can only imagine as they went about the feasting that, by the way, they were commanded to do. They were commanded to feast. They were commanded to not be sad. They were commanded to not mourn. And here's what's really good for us to realize is that every week after services, we have a community feast. And every week we gather for that community feast, that whole thing is happening in the midst of so much unspoken internal weeping. Do you guys understand that? You guys are going through stuff. A lot of you guys are going through deep stuff right now, serious stuff. We, we always are. And some, sometimes it, it comes in, in different percentages. And sometimes some of us are not going through those things and, and other of our brothers and sisters are going through those things. What's interesting is that every time we enter that room to eat and to enjoy fellowship and to continue the worship service, that's what that is, that's happening for many of you with much internal weeping and grieving going on, right? We hold these things in tension. There are serious things that happen and are happening in the lives of our people. We don't try to hide from those things or minimize their existence, but we still feast on Sunday, every Sunday. We still express our thankfulness to God by eating together, by enjoying his good gifts. It would be wrong not to do that on some level. What does it say here? The joy of the Lord, this was the reminder, is our strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And by strength, we mean refuge. We mean that place we can go for protection. The joy of the Lord is the place where you go for security, and he brings that joy into your heart and into your lives in ways, even with all the circumstances going haywire in your life, that can produce a level of joy knowing that ultimately God has this. God has you. God had the Israelites. He had them. Man, 
We read, man, we've just pre- it was like we're preaching the same sermon there every week for like five weeks, all the opposition they were facing. And yet God had them. So when the instruction goes out to the Israelites, hey, you can rejoice. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's reminding them of who has preserved them. And when you eat your donuts today, my donuts, easy. What you're doing is you are living into a truth that holds your feelings and holds your reality together in context every time. And the Lord is my refuge and my strength. There is a joy there because everything I'm experiencing is not for nothing. He has a plan. He is holding me. He is preserving me. And the joy of that acknowledgement and that knowledge is what gives me strength to rejoice. Some of us need to have some renewed hearts for rejoicing. Man, some of our hearts have become calloused, a little cynical, maybe a little self-pitying, unable to praise God, it feels like. We're taking breaths right now. Sometimes it's hard to rejoice in that. It's hard to rejoice for the food that we eat sometimes, the clothes that we wear, the cars that we drive, the money that we we enjoy spending, the friends we have the privilege of knowing, the families that we're a part of. And by the way, the burdens that come with all of those, those blessings. I feel like this is so difficult for me. I feel like this can be so difficult for me as an American because I feel entitled to these things. I feel like somehow when I was born, it was written somewhere, like on the other side of the birth certificate, like all those things were like my fundamental right to have. When in reality, they're they're not. They're not. And so rejoicing for the Christian comes with an acknowledgement and a sobriety that We are creatures who are formed by the hands of a creator who decides to give us good gifts because he's a good father. And it leads us to rejoicing in him, not because the gifts are so good or because there's a constant stream of those gifts or that, hey, when I wake up in the morning, I demand that I get these particular things or I'm owed these particular things or there is a particular lifestyle that I've worked for, I've earned, and that's mine. That's, that's not, that actually doesn't lead to rejoicing, right? We rejoice in the Lord because wherever those wherever the percentage and the amount of those things lie, God is still God and he is still protecting us. He is still saving us. We remember that. Your kids probably don't rejoice over their breakfast in the morning. They probably don't. When's the last time your kids said, oh my gosh, this Pop-Tart. I mean, I don't know what to say. I'm just... I don't even know if I can carry on today. I don't know if I can get to school today. But my heart is just overflowing with thankfulness because you guys worked all week to be able to afford to buy me that Pop-Tart. The Pop-Tart's in my hands right now. And it's, it's unbelievable, the flavor of this thing. How many times did that happen this week? That many. That many times, right? 
They probably didn't do the same thing for the clothes that they're wearing, for their bedroom, for their toys, for their bikes, for their gaming systems, right? We are like that. It's cute until you look in the mirror. We can be like entitled kids. And that's why repentance is so vital so that we have hearts that are constantly being renewed for rejoicing, right? That's why we return to rejoicing every Sunday through the liturgy that Scott prepares because we want to get our hearts back to rejoicing every Sunday in the setting of the gathered church. So what do we take from this? I'm going to ask you this. I'm going to ask you to imagine what this church, this community might look like if we recovered a renewed desire, understanding, and rejoicing for God and for his word. I'm going to ask you to imagine how different your lives, listen, might look if you begin to be attentive to God and his word in ways that you are just distant from right now. If you begin to believe like Peter that there is nowhere else to go and that Christ has the words of eternal life, maybe today is the day that the spirit convicts you and you say, Lord, I've been going through the motions. My life resembles a merry-go-round. I jump on, I jump off. The word has become dull to me. Christ, it's like he's a Marvel character, right? I live as if this life is all there is, so I respond by accumulating things. I set my mind on what I think will bring me happiness with barely an acknowledgement that the entirety of this life is the equivalent of taking my first baby step when it comes to eternity. Maybe that describes you. It's helpful to remember Peter's words here when he says, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails. I like grass. It's beautiful. I like flowers too. They're beautiful, but they wither and they fail. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Don't forget. Be reminded don't forget. Be reminded. Seek God. You know a prayer that God's going to answer for you is when you seek him and you say, God, I feel dull. Your word bores me. Would you change that in me? And then pray it again in about an hour and then pray it again the next morning and then pray it, I don't know, the rest of your life. You want to pray a prayer that the Lord is going to willingly and with eagerness answer. You want to pray a prayer that you know will for sure be a yes? That's the prayer. Lord, renew my desire and my understanding of your words so that I can rejoice in you in a way that will just radically alter my life. Radically alter not just my life, but the people of whose lives you placed in my life. Seek God so that you can see what's happening here with fresh eyes and how it's applied to you. Because we don't just serve a God that's up there, that's just looking down, 
that's just letting us just kind of do what we want to do until he can occasionally come down and condemn us for our behavior. But we serve a God who sent his son to be with us so that our eyes and our hearts would be drawn to the person of Jesus Christ so that his word would be alive and living and breathing in us so that we could know with the assurance that we sang with this morning that our lives are held by him and his joy is our strength. We can do that. And that's the charge and the commission for us this morning. Amen. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this work that you did thousands of years ago with the children of Israel. We thank you that it's a work you are continuing today. Lord, passages like this are humbling because we are dull in a lot of ways to your word. We have a hunger and a desire for things that are collapsible, Lord, and we pray that you would change that, change our focus, renew us, Lord, in the power and in the beauty and in the glory and the transformation that comes when we read your word, we understand your word, and it leads to rejoicing in you. But we know these things aren't overnight. But Lord, if we come before you right now and we pray earnestly for these things, we know that you will grant us these things because these are your very heart. This is your very will for us. So Lord, even as I'm praying this, Lord, I pray that your spirit would even give us a desire to pray for a desire. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you gave us these words that are words of life for us. And we pray that they would continue to transform our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.